0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So God willing, today we're going to um, review the first part of Second Corinthians chapter 7 that we covered uh, last week. We, we covered the first 11 verses, I believe. So we're just going to do a quick overview of those 11 verses. And then we'll continue um, from there, and we'll see how far we get today.
1: So St. Paul says, therefore,
0: having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. And here we said St. Paul was speaking about the promise that God had made in the previous chapter, in chapter six, where um, God was saying that he would be a father to his people and that we would be his sons and daughters. And so St. Paul is responding and saying, because we have been made children of God, then we have a calling to be pure, to be without filth, to be cleansed um, of all filthiness of flesh and spirit. We spoke about our responsibility and our response to God's promise of this relationship that he has made with us. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. And great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. So he's exhorting them, and he's speaking about his love for them and how he boasts about them. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Titus had brought to St. Paul some good news about the Corinthians, so he's speaking to them about how he felt comforted and joyful at the coming of Titus because he gave him this news about them. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. So he's speaking about how in the first epistle to the Corinthians, he was very harsh with them. And he kind of um, second-guessed himself. Like, he asked himself, like, should I have been this harsh regarding all of the sins and the problems that were happening in the Corinthian church? And so he actually reveals that at the time after he wrote the letter, he had regretted how harsh he was. But now um, he does not regret it because he saw that it made a powerful impact on them and they changed and and, and improved as a result. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And we spoke at length last time about the difference between the worldly sorrow and the godly sorrow, and what are the characteristics of each one. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So here he lists a, a, you know a series of things, positive things that come from, the sorrow that they experienced at, at, the, at the rebuke of St. Paul. And when St. Paul rebuked them, they felt sorry, they felt bad about themselves, and it produced actually something good, which is the godly sorrow as opposed to the worldly sorrow. So I believe this is where we, we stopped from last time. So we can continue here. So it says, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you and the sight of God might appear to you. Do you know who he's speaking about here? Who is this when it says for the sake of him? I did not write to you for the sake of him who had done the wrong. You know what he's speaking about here? Okay, the people. But there's a specific person here that he's mentioning. He's actually mentioned him many times throughout the epistles. The one
1: who was in a relationship with his
0: stepmother? Yeah. So there was a man who, um, in the first epistle, um, St. Paul rebukes and calls for the church to excommunicate and to put him out of the church. Um, because he had a relationship with his stepmother. And since then, and since the rebuke that happened, um, the man had repented. And he came back to the church. And St. Paul speaks about his repentance. And speaks about how he that the church should should accept him warmly again and and receive him again. Um, so here, what Saint Paul is saying is the message that he wrote to them. It was not to call out a specific instance, right? Like you know, a lot of times when um, like a leader is calling out something that's happening wrong, something that's happening wrong, it's not because he has like a personal vendetta against this specific person or that he's wanting to call out this specific instance. But he's wanting to make um, a, a, an example for the whole group to see and to, to, to understand the guiding principle that we should be living by. So he's saying here, I did not you know, have anything against this man or seek the punishment of this man, right? It was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, but that our care for you and the sight of God might appear to you. So by by, by telling you that you need to put this man out of the church, it sends a message to the whole church. It sends a message that um, there's a certain standard of holiness that we should be observing in the church. When somebody falls, right, and they should repent and confess their sin, we should not tolerate sin to be in the church. And this can be, you know, I may want to get your opinion about this. So, you know, we always speak about how the church is a hospital. And we speak about how we should be expecting people who are sinners and imperfect to come to the church and that the church is full of those who are sinners. Okay. So on that side of it, we always talk about how, you know, we we are um, understanding that people are falling into sin. Okay. But on the other side, we speak about how the church is a place of holiness and a church is the place where we should not be tolerant of sin. Right. So how can you have both at the same time? You know, How can can St. Paul be speaking about mercy and the love of God and all these things? while at the same time, he is saying that this man should be excommunicated.
1: Yes. I um, I was reading this book by Father Seraf and Father Musi about, it is called Towards Repentance. And uh, he mentioned how there is like a paradox with repentance. Like there's like, there's an aspect to it in which you uh, like I mentioned earlier, having like a, a godly sorrow in which you say, I have committed this sin, I have wronged Christ. But then there's a flip side of it, which is that you have hope that he will accept you, you have hope that he loves you, and that you have hope for the future that you will be better. So I think it's kind of like a paradox in, in the sense that like it's explaining it right now. As much as we observe holiness within the church. Uh, like there are ones that uh, there are going to be times where, where we fall into sin, but I think that the, the point that Saint Paul or anyone else would make is that uh, when we come into church we have to come with the idea that we are we are trying to approach Christ and leave the sin rather than come to church just because like you know and, and then just have it's, it's not re- really about acceptance but rather renewal, I think yeah.
0: Very good, right? So the church is a place of holiness, right? And so we can't forget that the church is a place of holiness because the church is governed by the law of God and the law of God is holy, right? So each of us, when we come to the church, the reason I am coming to the church is because I feel the need for this in my life. like I And I am acknowledging that maybe I do not live up to the standard of holiness that I should be, right? So indeed, when I come to the hospital, the person who comes to the hospital is a sick person and not not a person who is healthy, right? So we come with the mentality that I am sick and I need to change and the church is the place for me to change, right? So yes, the church accepts me as I am, just as a hospital would accept any patient with any illness, but the hospital is not a place where those people who are ill are going to celebrate their illness nor are they going to just sit around being ill without taking any action right such people are going to be kicked out of the hospital you have no reason to be here right if you want to be cured if you want to be treated if you want to you know but but, but if you had a patient who would go around to all the other patients and tell them hey you don't need to take your medication you don't need to do your surgery you don't need to do any of that stuff right Just reject it all. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? The hospital is going to kick out this patient because they're being a disruption and they're they're, they're conflicting with the very function, the very purpose of that organization, which is to heal the body, right? So just as the hospital is the place for the healing of the body, the church is the place for the healing of the soul. So when somebody comes to the church, that person should be in agreement with the goals and the tenets of the faith. Or at least exploring them, like in the case of someone who is like a catechumen or someone who is looking to join the church perhaps, coming to see what is it that we believe. And those who are already baptized, those who are in the church, should be defending this holiness. Now, because I'm defending the holiness of the church, it doesn't mean that every action that I do personally is a holy action. Or that every thought that I do personally is a holy thought. Because again, I'm a patient in this hospital. And so as a patient in the hospital, I am in need of the services of the hospital because I am falling short of that. So everyone in the church can be a sinner and yet the church as a whole is holy, right? Which kind of goes to that paradox, okay, that you're mentioning is that even though we are all sinners and we are all members of the body, we are the body of Christ and yet Christ is holy, the church is holy, and the standard of the church is holy, right? Because we are all struggling to reach that standard, and the fact that we are ill and sick, God gives us the remedy for illness. He says, what, come and confess your sins, and I will remember your sins no more. So when we repent, and we confess, and we take communion, all of the sickness, all of the illness, all of the wounds, everything that is Um, you know, making us to be sick is removed. Now, yes, we were gonna get sick again and we're gonna fall into sin again. But this is, and again, they'll use the word, they use the renewal process. This is a constant renewal over and over and over. It's a washing over and over. But to those who decide that in whatever state they're in, this is where they want to remain and they are not going to continue this process of renewal for that person, the church ceases to have any value, right? For the person who comes and says, I declare that a certain moral system or truth that is foreign to the Bible, that is foreign to God, that is foreign to the church. I declare that this moral system is actually good and right, right? That person, has declared themselves to be a church unto themselves and a God unto themselves, right? And they cannot benefit from the church, the true church, right? So this is the balance between when we speak about the holiness of God and the holiness of the church versus the sinfulness of man. So here he's saying what? St. Paul is emphasizing the holiness of the church. This man who committed this sin, if he had repented and confessed his sin, he would have not have been put out of the church and he would have been no different than anyone else who everyone commits sin. Right, the difference was is, and the reason that St Paul called out this person so harshly is that he did not repent of his sin and the church was just kind of like accepting it, you know, some say that he was like a prominent uh, person in the church well known person and so. People were not calling him out people not rebuking him, they were just kind of like accepting this fact to have happened and that's why St Paul dealt so harshly with them, because he made it clear that this was not an acceptable behavior okay. Do you have a question? Yeah. Question. How
1: would you go about calling someone like what did St Paul expect of the people like how would they have done
0: about calling him out. So, so, for instance, to nowadays right yeah. if there is someone. Who is having an affair, or anyone who is living with someone extramaritally without marriage, that person cannot take communion, for instance, right? Because by that, that's that's what that's what excommunication is about, right? Communion is the union with the rest of the body, right? And so to not take communion is to say you are not in communion with the rest of the body. What you are doing, you're um, your moral systems, your decisions, the things that you're doing puts you contrary and against the church and the body of Christ. So you cannot defend that way of life and declare it to be good and right while at the same time coming to the church and taking communion. So that's one way, you know, like, like there, there are, you know, people who fall into different kinds of sins where they refuse to repent of them. Like the, the church addresses it, talks to them. so okay, not taking communion obviously is, is one way. Um, being suspended from services and different things like that, depending on the nature of of what's happened. Right. But, but definitely to prevent someone from taking communion, it sends a message saying you, your actions are not welcome. Right. You can repent and change and be accepted again, but you're, you cannot defend your sin and then expect that everyone is just going to, you know, treat it as though it's, it's fine. That's part of the Well, so definitely um, among our peers, we have a responsibility to encourage and to exhort and to rebuke. So when someone in the congregation would rebuke someone, they are doing it as like a brother or sister who is encouraging them to change their ways, giving them warning and all of that. It is not their place to excommunicate or their place to give kind of judgment on it. It is that is the role of the church, right? but it is the role of peers and the the other members of the body of Christ to help that person come out of that. So yes, tell them that this isn't a right way to live. This is wrong. You can't live like that. Okay. (laughs) Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So so St. Paul, When he received this good report from Titus about them, he became comforted and joyful, right? And Titus himself, he says, because his spirit has been refreshed. So Titus was joyful to to hear all this good news about them since the first epistle, right? Because the first epistle, St. Paul addressed many problems that have now been resolved. So so Titus is coming to St. Paul and saying, oh, all these things that you talked to them about, like it's improved, right? So he was happy and St. Paul was happy. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. Right? Like St. Paul is so proud of them. You know, like, like a father who is so proud of his children. He's boasting about them. He's saying to Titus like how happy he is for everything that they have done. Right? It really like warms and gladdens his heart because of all the progress that the Corinthians have made. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Right, so Titus was sent to the Corinthians because St. Paul could not go as he originally wanted. Um, and saying they they received him warmly, you know, like that by itself Like they received him. They, they knew that St. Titus was coming and perhaps he was going to come with some kind of rebuke or warning or consequence or whatever, but they, they accepted him warmly and he saw firsthand the progress and the change that happened done. This is the end of chapter seven. Any questions before we move on to chapter eight?
1: Okay. Yes. Uh, so uh, earlier when, when St. Paul was talking about how he regretted uh, initially like rebuking them, uh, is it like, is there a situation in which it would be okay for him to, to tell them that he regretted rebuking them? Like, as like they were in the midst of rebuking, him, if that makes sense? Like, tell them, like, oh, I'm doing this because I care, because I don't want you to be better. Like, is that, is that good? That, like, as you're rebuking someone?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, the, the, so if you're asking, um, while you are rebuking someone, is it okay to reveal to them? that it's difficult for you to rebuke, but you're doing it for their good? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. I mean, again, like every situation is different, but if the person doing the rebuking feels like it's necessary to explain this, because sometimes what happens when we rebuke a person is that person begins to doubt our love for them,
1: yeah.
0: right? And so to re-emphasize our love for them, to make them understand that our rebuking for them is not an act of hatred, Right. It's actually an act of love. So, so yes, to talk about how hard it is. And that's exactly what St. Paul did. You know, he said, he said, at the time I regretted how harsh I was, but only now, in hindsight, after some time has passed, and I saw the benefit that you gained from that rebuke that I'm now no longer regretting. Right. So he's expressing to them like the warmth of his love. Like any anyone who rebukes another person, like a parent who rebukes their, their children, right? They don't enjoy it. Like they don't enjoy seeing the process of taking something from their children or enjoy seeing their children sad or crying. No parent enjoys that. But sometimes we feel it is necessary for the greater good, right? For the greater lesson that to keep them from greater pain in the future that we rebuke. And so to, to for, for the children to see that the parents are heartfelt and broken for their sake is, is good. You know, it emphasizes the love the parents have for the children. Okay, so um, here St. Paul, he continues, and he's going to focus on um, showing love toward the poor Christians who are living in Jerusalem. So this was always a problem because um, the early church, of course, experienced a lot of persecution. And a lot of that persecution was at the hand of the Jews because the Christians were born from the Jews. So that is kind of where there was the greatest conflict and tension between the two. In these Gentile areas, there was some persecution, but but it wasn't as difficult for them as it was in Jerusalem because in Jerusalem was kind of like the, where it all began, right? That's like the the heart of Israel, right? And all those Jews who saw um, Christianity as a sect and as like this this deviation from God, someone like St. Paul, for instance, at the beginning, right? When he was a Pharisee, that's where the greatest persecution was. And so the churches would all collect uh, money for donating to the church in Jerusalem to help the poor Christians living there, and especially those who are suffering from persecution. So in this chapter, St. Paul is going to speak about um, the importance of of remembering the plight of these poor Christians who are living in Jerusalem and collecting uh, money for them and exhorting the Corinthians to be Uh, generous in giving. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Okay, so the churches of Macedonia, Right. So Macedonia is like a a big region, right? The Macedonian includes the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, the Philippians. Okay. Among those who are included there. Um, Thank you. So he is... um,
1: He's saying, the grace of God has been bestowed on all of the churches, all these churches that are in Macedonia. Okay?
0: And so he is imploring the Corinthians. He's saying to them, um, you also, just as all as the other uh, Macedonian churches have been giving generously, you also should give generously. So St. Paul has been preaching the same message to the other churches. And so he's saying to the Corinthians, you also, as the other churches in Macedonia, um, have, you also give. And he's reminding them of the grace that God has bestowed on them, right? We, when when we compare ourselves with our neighbor, um, we tend to forget about all the grace that God has bestowed on us. And I mean, literally your neighbor, right? Because like, let's say in whatever neighborhood you live in, Um, the people all kind of are at the same social level, let's say, they drive similar cars, they have similar houses, they have similar activities, they do similar things. And so when people are kind of like, maybe even in some cases competing with, um, the people who are kind of in their area, we, we feel always like maybe we're at a disadvantage. There's always somebody who has more. There's always someone with a bigger house, with a nicer car, You know there's always somebody with something better than me and there's always something that i'm looking up toward like i wish that i could achieve such and such like i wish that one day i could have this or i need to save up money for this or one day i want to be able to make certain amount of money so that i can have such and such okay so we're always looking up right and when we look up we feel like we have more to go we feel like what i have is little what i have is not enough we feel like i always want to increase myself okay but when you look at those who are below, maybe sometimes we even forget that there are those who are below.
1: When we look at those
0: who are below, it feels different. Maybe the things that we take for granted that we have, that those people who are below, they they would wish to have even just one of the simple things that we have. If you look at the the people in Egypt, for instance, so many people who are living in such poverty that they, they couldn't imagine to live in the lifestyle that we have, right? So the more that we look at the needs of people around us, the more we are mindful of the grace of God upon us. Right? The more we see those who lack the things that we have, the more we are aware of how much really we have. Okay? And this is why um, like when we do community service, when we serve those people who are the poor, this is a great way for us to remind ourselves really of how much we have. And the more I feel that I have abundance, You know, the more I feel that God has really bestowed me with abundance, not just what I need to live, but abundance. And that abundance doesn't come because I got a raise. That abundance comes with the realization that I am already in abundance, right? Maybe my abundance is different than the abundance of someone else. But if I really ask, you know, St. Paul, he says, with food and clothing, these will be content. That's what he says. With food and clothing, these will be content. And right now we have food and clothing and houses and and clothes and jobs and money and luxuries and all this. And even with this, we are still not content because we have been programmed to want these things. We have been programmed always to desire more than we have. And this this is consumerism, right? This is the way the economy runs. And this is why the rich people keep getting richer and the poor people keep getting poorer, right? It's because we have been programmed to always desire what is more. And we voluntarily take our money and we give it to people who are filthy rich so that they can give us more, right? And this is the way, this is the way our country operates, right? We are the ones who give money to these people. You know, like we talk about like, um, like disparity, like wealth disparity. The people who are rich are rich because the poor people gave them their money, all of them, right? The more I give them my money, the more they will be rich they're smart because of the way they attract people so that they would give them their money. But if instead of looking toward and kind of being deceived by the message of the world, that we are always in need of more, of bigger and nicer and fancier, and, you know, whatever, if instead we kind of like stop, and we say, what really do I have? And what really do I need? Is, 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 is is what I need even 10% of what I have? Like, like, how much really more like, than what I need do I have? I have so much more really than what I need. And there are people that don't have barely what they need or don't even have what they need. So here, the more we um, realize the abundance that God has bestowed on us, the more we will be desiring and generous and feeling that I'm overflowing with more than I need so that I would give to those who are in need and those who really are in need okay, um, that in a great trial of the affliction, the abundance of their joy, right, the, the, the trial of their affliction is this persecution I was speaking about, okay, and their deep poverty, okay, so these churches um, have, you know, been subjected to poverty and persecution, okay, but they have an abundance of joy, right, they have an abundance of joy despite the persecution. Because the joy comes from God and not from physical things. Those people who find joy in the physical things, when the physical things are removed, then they are suddenly in despair. Because they have lost the things that are the source of their happiness. Okay, But if someone feels joy over something that cannot be taken from them, then they are invulnerable. Nothing can take away the joy that they have. Nothing can make them feel sorrow right, because they are living with something that is eternal, not something that is temporal, right, so it's asking them that, that even though God has bestowed on you these things, that you are experiencing the abundance of the joy that comes from the grace of God on you, you will feel even greater joy when you share of what you have, have received from God with those who are less, those who are lacking, right, and you will receive greater joy, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. So these other churches, right? When he's speaking about the churches of Macedonia, okay? They gave according to their ability and some gave even greater than their ability, okay? And this is the thing with tithing. Tithing is about obviously fulfilling the commandment of God, okay? But it's also about realizing that everything that we have, we received it from God, and that God wants us to voluntarily and willingly give up a part of it. And when we give up a part of it, we are rem- remembering that this is not mine, that this is coming to me from God, and it's this, this doesn't even belong to me. You know, think about how easy it would have been for God to just distribute those 10% to where he wants. Just give it to all the people. God wants us to be the source of the blessing that is received by someone else, okay? So tithing is supposed to be like done with cheer, with joy, with understanding that God is really the owner. We are the stewards. And it also should hurt a little bit. You know, timing should hurt a little bit. It, it, it should cause us like a little bit of like a realization, like, like a like a like a prick of, of realization that we are giving up something, right? For the sake of another person. Because that's part of its value, is that it is a sacrifice. It should not just be a transaction. It should be like a, a, a something that I give out of love give out of love to the church, out of love to the poor, out of love to whatever cause that we are donating to, right? It should be something that I, I acknowledge that God is working through my donation, through my time for the sake and the benefit of somebody else.
1: So, I mean, I think it's just 10%. I mean, not really, I mean, I could, that's just me. but like, if there are people that were right. five, 10% is not really that great. Like, are we supposed to increase it just so we feel it? It's like,
0: it's like you said? Or like, yeah, so uh, actually in the temple, yeah. there was two like giving boxes. There was one box that was used to pay the tithe. And there was a different box that was used to pay anything above the tithe. So if somebody wanted to give more than the tithe, it's like giving more than the tithe is truly an act of love. Giving the tithe, I'm not saying that it's not an act of love, but it's an act of obedience, right? Because I must give it. So like for instance, when, when, when Christ is saying, when someone asks you to walk with them one mile, walk with them two miles. Why? Because the first mile is an obligation. The first mile, the fact that you're working, the, the, that you're going to go with them the first mile, this is not an act of love. This is, you must walk with them the first mile. If your boss tells you you have to work eight hours a day, those eight hours are not an act of love. Those eight hours are an act of obedience. But if you work nine hours a day, or if you give 15% and 10 and 10%, or if you walk two miles instead of one mile, that extra is not obedience because you are not obligated to give. That extra is out of love. It is out of a real desire. It is out of a passion. It is out of like, like, like coming from your heart. And not coming just from uh, an act of obedience. So, it is good to give more than the tithe. I, that is a, in an individual decision that's made by each person with their father in confession. It is not the commandment. I'm not telling everyone you need to give more than 10%. Let's just focus on giving the 10%. Okay. But if for a specific person, right, they are at a stage where they can give more than 10%, then this is truly like an act of love giving. To God, not out of commandment, but out of the desire to give. Um, So, when we minister to the saints in this way, not only are we giving them a gift, but we ourselves are receiving a gift and a blessing from God for giving to those who are in need. You know, the Lord always says, Do not try the Lord your God, do not try me, right? Meaning, do not experiment with God, do not push the limits of God. Do not test to see what God would do in a certain situation, right? There's only one time where where God says to test him. And that is when it says, what? Regarding the tithes. He says, bring me the tithes and test me in this. If if I will not, what? Says what in uh, Malachi 3, verse 10? He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive. This is what the Lord says about the tithe. He says, if you will give me your 10%, I will give you far more than 10%. Now, that far more doesn't necessarily mean that it's money. Right? Lest we think that this is somehow kind of a get-rich-quick scheme. You know, all I got to do is I give 10% and God is going to give me back 50%. So this is a good, it's a good way, it's a good investment, right? That's not, that's not how we should be thinking about it. God is not speaking here that he's going to make us wealthy when we pay tithe. He might, but that's not a promise. The promise is that God will bless us in a way that is so abundant that we will not be able to handle the blessing, right? The, and pour out for you such blessing that there will be not room enough to receive it. Like the blessing will be so outlandish. That blessing can come in many ways. Right. Just having a life of peace. You know, there are people that would do anything, just have peace. Their life is full of conflict and strife and problems and problems with people and problems with health and problems with money and problems with with everything you can imagine. Right. Maybe for that person, you know, you you offer them a billion dollars versus you, offer them I just want to have a life of, of peace, you know, which is more valuable. So the way that God rewards, this is up to him. And this is different for each person. But this is what the Lord said about giving, about tithing, is that he would reward those who tithe. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Okay, the Corinthians responded by not only giving in the other Macedonian churches. They responded by not only giving beyond their ability out of love, but they gave themselves to the Lord and to the apostles. Right, they offered themselves as a sacrifice for the sake of God and the spiritual ministry, right? So this is what he is calling here the Corinthians to do, and that God is calling all of us to do is to give ourselves, right? To give ourselves to the Lord. If you know, when we speak about tithing, right, tithing is just giving of our of our money, right? But God is actually asking for all of us, all of us, all of ourselves. He's saying to give us ourselves, okay, to surrender our lives to God, to let God be the Lord of our life, to let God be the one to direct and to guide, for us to submit our will to the will of God, rather than to push our will on him. All of this is sacrificing, right? You know, tithing is one small part of the surrender. You know, the, 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 the surrender that we are called to surrender to God, tithing is just one small aspect of it. But if, if for us to learn the idea of surrendering our will and surrendering our life, we can't do that if we haven't even learned yet how to tithe, Right. And learning, learning the fundamentals of tithing is like a baby step compared to surrendering our entire life to God. Okay. So this all says what, not only are they giving of their, of their material things, but they are giving of themselves as well to God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well, right? Titus, again, he's the one who visited the Corinthians. He had begun collecting money for the saints of Jerusalem during his first visit to Corinth. Um, And the church there received him and all felt his great love for them. And he was collecting from them for these uh, poor Christians in Jerusalem, okay? Um, So now St. Paul is sending him to complete this mission of giving, okay. Um, and and it's and, and so he's telling them, right, to expect this. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also, right? All of these other things you are abounding in, which is good, like the Corinthian church was known for having many spiritual gifts, right? And that God had bestowed on them many graces in many ways, okay. So St. Paul is saying is, as you are abounding in the grace of God, in your spiritual gifts, in all these things that God has given you, and in your knowledge, in your understanding, in your speech, right? Also abound in this. Don't neglect this. You know, some people neglect this tithing as though it is unnecessary or unimportant, or they struggle with it. Here St. Paul is saying, don't don't abandon this. Don't um, neglect this um, commandment. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. So he's not saying, "I want you to do this because I'm commanding you to do it." Right? I'm not. I'm not telling you how much to give, and I'm not telling you that you have what you have to do. But I want this to come from your heart. I want this to be an expression of your inner love to these suffering Christians in Jerusalem, and that out of the abundance of your heart, you are going to give. I want this to be a decision you make, not because I come and give you a guilt trip, not because I'm commanding you, not because there's going to be some consequence if you don't do it. I want you to offer this to them out of your own heart. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you might through his poverty, that you, that, that you through his poverty might become rich. So he's speaking here about the, the, the salvation. And he's putting it in a very clear way that we can understand right So he's reminding them <clears throat> and he's saying the Lord Jesus Christ was rich. He was rich in his glory in heaven right But he was what for your sakes he became poor meaning that he was became a human being. He accepted the weakness of the humanity to himself and in this he became poor like someone who is uh, living as a, a king in a palace, Who then leaves the palace and accepts the life of a beggar. Okay. For your sake. He did this out of love for your sake. He became poor. Why? That through his poverty. Through this acceptance of poverty on his part. You might become the king. You know. The king became a beggar. So that you could become the king. This is what he's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ did. So he's reminding them. That this is, he is the one that we are following. He is the one that we are emulating, we are imitating. We are saying, just as the Lord Jesus Christ became poor for our sakes, then we should accept even poverty for the sake of others, right? This is also based on the, the verse in Philippians 2, verse 8, and it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Right? So the more we meditate, on all the things that the Lord Christ gave up for us, then it should make it easier for us to give up the things that we have for one another. And in this, I give advice. It is to your advantage, not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. Okay, so they, they were desiring this, okay, um, before, and now they are, now have the opportunity to follow through with it, right? Kind of like the difference between making plans and actually doing it, like, it's very easy to make a plan, you know, especially maybe at the beginning of the year, everybody's thinking about the year, what I'm gonna, what are my plans for this year, what I'm going to do, and so on. It's easy to make a plan, okay, and it's easy to have a desire for something. All of us can desire a lot of things. But what is the true test? It's not just having a desire or just having a plan, but it's following through with that desire, following through with the plan, right? That really uh, reveals, was this really a desire or not? How do we know whether we really want something? You say, what am I willing to give up to attain it? You know, what am I willing to give up to attain it? You know, the people who want to be Olympic Olympic gold, gold medal winners, those who really want it, Right. They sacrificed time every single day for four years so that they could train for just maybe in some cases, just a few minutes of competition to see if they could win the gold medal. And they practiced and trained for that for four years, like grueling training, like sacrificing so many other important things in their life for the sake of that time that they would spend training. That means they really desire. Like, that's a true desire. You come and ask me, Do you want Olympic gold medal? Sure, give me an Olympic gold medal. I'd love to have one. Right? What are you willing to do for it? Not really anything. You know, that means I don't really desire it. It would be nice if someone said, Give me one. Okay, I'll take it. But I don't really have a desire for it. It's not really something that's kind of on my mind and heart all the time. So, even when we ask ourselves, when it comes to like spiritual things, you know, Maybe some of us, we read, like, the stories of the Desert Fathers, or we read about saints, we read about holy figures in the church, and we say, wow, you know what? I want to be like these people. I want to be able to fast like they did. I want to be able to pray like they did. I want to be able to forgive like they did. I want to be able to, like, have a depth of spiritual understanding and knowledge like they did. And we read these stories. We're, like, fascinated by them. We read stories about, like, Pope Carlos. We're, like, wow, I I want to be able to do the things he did. Okay, but then the question is, what are you willing to do to get it? Like, we shouldn't look at the rewards and the fruit, and say, you know what, I'm just give me the fruit. You can't, you you can't just take the fruit. You have to do the grueling steps necessary to grow the fruit. You know, it's like a. You know, I was just telling uh, Jonah the other day. Like, we have in our neighborhood this orchard. They call it an orchard. I've lived there for you know, almost five years. I've never seen anything growing there. I, 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 so how long does it take to actually grow an apple tree? I mean, I don't know. Years. How long does it take to actually grow a tree and finally get an apple on that tree? I think it takes years to do that. And so for years, somebody is watering that tree and fertilizing that tree and getting that tree ready and doing all the stuff to the tree, right? So that eventually there can be fruit on that tree. And eventually that person who has put all that effort into the tree they deserve that fruit like they earned that fruit with their effort right whereas somebody like me i'm walking by i see apple on a tree i could just plug the apple on the tree and eat it right nice apple right would you be willing to work for five years and planting and watering and doing all this thing for the tree no i would not the apple is not that important to me okay so when it comes to the spiritual life We have to ask ourselves, how important is this to us? How much am I willing to alter my life for this? How much am I willing to sacrifice for this? How much, like, is it just nice stories? And when I read the stories, I'm kind of like a little motivated by them. Or is it, I I, I like, I'm convicted. And in that conviction, I decide that I have to change the course of my life as a result. Because I truly want holiness. And I truly want to have closeness with God the way that they had. Right, This is a big difference. It's easy for someone to say, you know what, I, I, I want to I give, you know, give my money to the poor. But then when the time comes, I start thinking about all the things that I'm going to miss out on as a result. And then I have second thoughts. Okay, So there has to be in the spiritual life, a true desire, which is backed up by personal sacrifice in order for me to succeed. You know, If if all I have is plans without action, then unfortunately I will not succeed. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. What does that mean?
1: We are in a mindset that we once acquire the fruit. Um, we are not going to be looking towards what we don't have, but rather invest in what is given to us and what we do have. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, so but what is it that we have?
1: Um, resources.
0: W- which resources do we have?
1: Hmm?
0: Our talents are people that God has put in
1: our lives, well, what else? Like, like, what is, what is he trying to say here to the Corinthians? Uh, don't compare what you have to what you have. So, so, uh, so uh, but uh, I think Paul is saying here that, you know, we should not compare what other people have to what we have.
0: Yeah, we should not compare what other people have to what we have. And because what's the, you know, when somebody comes and says to you, okay, I want you to, to tithe. And then you say, well, my income is, you know, my income is like $100 a week. You know, my income is nothing. What what value would my 10% give? So the first thing
1: that I'm willing mind gives... It's
0: like so, so if somebody has a willing mind to obey the commandments, it doesn't matter what you have and that you should give according to what you have and not according to what you do not have. Because what happens with tithing a lot of times? People are like, well, I can't afford tithing now. But when I get a raise, when I get a promotion, when I finish my college degree, when I get a better job, when certain expenses that I'm paying now and I stop paying them, when whatever, okay? Then my tithing will be practical, possible, make a difference, whatever, okay? Here St. Paul is saying the commandment of tithing has nothing to do with your situation. It has nothing to do with how much money you have or how much money you make or how many expenses you have or anything, right? It is simply a commandment to do it. So if there is a willing mind and I'm willing to do it and I want to do it, it will be accepted according to my situation. So if I'm only making $1, then give 10 cents, right? And don't say to yourself, what is the point of giving 10 cents? Who's going to benefit from my 10 cents, right? Just as the Lord when he was in the temple and all of these very rich people were putting in all of their money into the, into the donation box. And then he saw this poor woman who gave the two mites and she's, and he said about her, this woman put in more than all of these other people. So in the eyes of God, he's not looking at it according to a number. And he's not looking at it according to how much good, like in terms of material things can be purchased with the amount of money that I'm giving. That is not the criteria. That's what we as human beings see. We see numbers and we see amounts and we see what you know. What is this going to buy and what is that going to buy? This principle of tithing is not only for serving someone else, but it is also for me to be served. Like I benefit spiritually from giving, right? Maybe, maybe this woman, maybe these two mites that you put in there. We don't know what happened to those two mites. We don't don't know what happened to those two months, right? But when I give, even if I'm giving 10 cents out of my $1, I am learning an important principle about reliance on God. I'm learning about obedience to God. I'm learning to trust God, right? And that saying, God is my provider, not this money. And that this money that I'm receiving doesn't even belong to me. It belongs to God. So this principle, Right is accepted according to what we have. God is not going to look at the person who's paying the 10 cents and saying, no, this is a useless offering. It's not in the eyes of God. This could be more valuable than millions of dollars that other people put in. Right? So we have no excuse not to do it. Right. We have no excuse not to do it. And again, Saint Paul is asking us to do it not out of a, an obedience. He's asking us to do it out of a love. If I truly believe about myself, even when I look around my situation and I see, you know what? There's a lot of people making more money than me. There's a lot of things that I want that I can't afford. And I'm always thinking about how much I need to save for this and how much this is gonna cost and how much this and that. And I need to buy that. If instead of focusing completely on that, which is all of my things, I focus instead on what are the people who don't even have an option of ever attaining what I currently have, you know? And what are the needs of those people? And maybe my attention should not be so much on how to increase what I have, but on how to help someone else to increase, okay? And and again, this this is the law of love. And this is a way that God has asked us to show love for one another. And again, he promises a great reward for this. You know, he promises a great reward. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, right? So he's going and saying, I'm not saying that you're going to give them all of your money so that now other people are wealthy and you yourself are poor, right? It's a very practical thing. You know, God is not asking these people to do something beyond their ability. I'm not asking that others should be eased, that you're going to give 60% of your wealth to people and that they're going to be living in luxury while you yourself are not going to be able to meet your basic expenses. This is not what St. Paul is saying to me. Right? But by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. And to remember that actually those Corinthians who are giving, they might one day find themselves on the receiving end of this. You know? How difficult is it for someone who maybe has lived the majority of their life? well off with a job or receiving a salary, able to pay for their expenses. How, How hard is it for such a person to one day receive charity? To receive it. Imagine yourself in such a situation, you know, where you are now on the receiving end of this. Where you now, God has allowed you to experience this poverty Right. And those people who are poor, are not poor because they're incompetent or because they're lazy. Right. God has allowed them in many cases to be born in such a situation that is very hard to come out of. And many of us perhaps were simply born in another situation, which again, we have no control over. Right. Imagine if we were in their situation one day and St. Paul is saying there is no difference between the two. The the idea of the church is that the church expresses love where one group supplies the needs of the other, and that can come in many different ways. Maybe one group is lacking financial support. Maybe one group is lacking emotional support. One group is lacking spiritual support. One group is lacking whatever. And the, the aim of the church is to be the sufficiency of every member that whatever each member needs is offered to them in the church because the church is a hospital. And the church is the house of God and God expresses love to his people through the church. So here, this is equality and notice also equality doesn't mean identical. Because if God's desire is equality, if God wants there to be equality, right, but the definition of equality was being identical, then he would have just created everyone identical, but he did not do so. right? And and, and, and and the verse 13 is the proof. that He's saying, well, I'm not saying that you're gonna give up all of your money so that you have exactly like the others have. And, and just to say that the command of tithing is only 10%. God did not say, I want every person to give all of their money to the church. Then the church will take that amount of money and divide it by the total number of people in the church and distribute it back. That is being identical. But God is not talking about being identical. He's talking about being equal, Fairness. Right? It is, it is an act of love to give. Okay? But giving according to your, your, your means. And people's means are different. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack what is this referring to when he said this? What is he quoting here? What are the people in the picture doing?
1: What is it Collecting? Bread.
0: Which bread? Manna. So what, what does it mean? The, the manna, they would go and they would find it on the ground and they would go and collect And some people collected a lot, but they also needed a lot, right? Because maybe they had large families and some people collected a little, but they only needed a little, right? So everyone was, had their sufficiency. Everyone was satisfied, right? This is God giving them this, you know? And also he told them, don't save any for tomorrow. And anyone who tried to save some manna for the next day, what would happen? It would go bad. It would rot. Like God is sending here a clear a clear message. He's saying, I am the one who is keeping you alive. I am the one who is who is giving you your needs, not the manna. And don't feel like you have to hoard it, protect it, you know, conserve it, whatever. You don't have to. Just take your daily bread, right? Take what you need for the day. And the next day, I will give you more right? This is a great way of thinking in general about life. We become so concerned about the future, which causes anxiety and worry. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future, but we often go beyond planning and fall into worrying and anxiety and panicking and uh, being afraid about what might happen in the future and will I have enough and will I not? And what's going? God is sending very clear messages here. He's saying, what, I am going to give you everything that you need each and every day. You don't have to worry about it. So don't like if you can't collect more, if it's good, like don't even, don't even don't feel like like don't worry about it. You know, like if you if you if you feel like you cannot save up any more money and, and, and you're not able to, to get a, a better job, don't worry about it. I'll take care of tomorrow. You know. So here God is the giver, right? And and everyone was sustained, everyone was supported and whatever they collected. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. So Titus feels the same way as St. Paul about this matter of giving, right? And so he chose on his own to go to uh, Corinth to encourage them to give for the sake of those who are lacking in Jerusalem. And we have sent with him The brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So what is St. Paul saying? I think they, they have chosen um, a person okay, who uh, was asked to accompany Titus. Some people say that it was St. Luke. Um, other people say it might have been Silas or Barnabas or Mark or Apollos. We don't know exactly who it is, but someone was selected okay, and his role was to kind of be the treasurer. Like he's the one who's going to take the money and he's going to deliver it faithfully to the church in Jerusalem, okay? So this person was chosen by the churches because of their faithfulness, okay? Um, because obviously it had to be a very trustworthy person that everyone would feel safe in trusting them with uh, such a large sum, okay? And we have sent with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. Okay, so they say that they were accompanied by a third person who was well known to St. Paul, who also was very zealous in love and faithfulness and St. Paul trusted him. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches, the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Okay, so Saint Paul is telling them I'm going to send you a delegation of people. Okay. There are all chosen servants faithful regarding this mission. And they are going to collect this money and they are going to deliver it to Jerusalem. Right? They didn't have Zell or ACH transfers or wire transfers or anything. Right. So the people that they chose to send to, to, to take to take this money. They had to be very, very certain that these people were going to deliver the money where it was supposed to go. Okay? That's a good stopping point for today. God willing, next time we will um, start on chapter 9. Glory be to God forever. Any questions or comments before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, for your blessings, for everything, O Lord, that you do for us each and every day of our lives. We ask you, O oh God, for your mercy, to have mercy upon us, weak sinners, to move in us and stir within us a zeal and a desire for repentance, and to come to you, O oh Lord, with a contrite heart, asking you, O oh Lord, to forgive us our sins. We ask you, O oh Lord, to give us a generous spirit to share with those who are in need. To those, O Lord, who are in poverty or in sickness or are lacking what it is that you have graced us with, to share with what is ours with them, we ask, O God, that you give us a desire for a pure spiritual ministry, to serve your people, O Lord, with purity and righteousness, and to keep, O Lord, the church always a place pure and cleansed and undefiled. We thank you, O Lord, for your great mercy upon us. We thank you, O God, for uh, incarnating on our behalf and dying for our sins, that we might become rich and you accepted poverty for our sake. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen the love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all, go in peace, the peace of the Lord.